You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. At our third session, we were speaking of the plight of parents in our public schools, children in our public schools, especially in the face of the militant secularism which pervades public education. And we noted the failure of litigation resulting in decisions by courts declaring secularist programs unconstitutional. But a measure of success on the part of parents desiring freedom in public education was achieved in 1984 when the Congress passed the so-called Equal Access Act. That's an act whereby public schools which receive federal financial assistance and which have a so-called limited open forum may not discriminate on the basis of religion politics or other content against students who wish to conduct meetings on school premises and if they like discuss religion. The limited open forum idea means permission of non-curricular related meetings of student groups during non-instructional time. This was challenged and eventually was upheld against establishment clause objection by the Supreme Court of the United States in the case known as West Side School District versus Mergens. It was a very happy development. Now, at our last session, we also noted the Yoder decision, the case about the Amish. And it was being called by scholars throughout the country the high watermark of our religious liberty jurisprudence. We showed the importance of that test which is that government, when it threatens religious liberty, must come into court like any other litigant and prove with facts that what it threatens to do is necessitated by some supreme societal interest or what the court called a compelling state interest and that its threatening action is the least restrictive means it can devise for realizing the achieving of that interest. How valuable that rule was. In Philadelphia in 1976, you see a striking instance of a governmental move to supplant the religious governance of religious institutions. The National Labor Relations Board sought to impose its jurisdiction on the Catholic parish schools there. That would have meant that the board, the NLRB, would be the ultimate authority to determine terms and conditions of employment in the parish schools. This could involve not only wages and hours, but also curriculum, discipline, and indeed the whole regime of the life of the school. But here the governing law, the National Labor Relations Act, was a religiously neutral law. Didn't mention Catholic schools or speak of religion. And it was one which was generally applicable simply to employees and employers. 
The parish schools involved employers and employees. The case was decided by the court in favor of the parish schools. Remember, this was 1977, and the basis for the ruling was the Yoder test, the two-part Yoder test. Here's what the court had to say in pointing to the evils of state control of ministries. This is the U.S. District Court speaking. We say without the slightest hesitancy that the parish elementary schools are profoundly religious in character. Turning to the National Labor Relations Act, the court said it was certainly not intended to regulate religious activity as such. Its purpose was to secure industrial peace through compulsory bargaining. NLRB's requirement of segregating the lay employee teachers into a separate bargaining unit burdens the free exercise of the church school's belief in a single, undivided community of faith. Further, the court went on to say, to governmentally compel the pastors or the archdiocese to bargain with a union over ecclesiastical concerns would certainly constitute a restraint upon the free exercise of religion. The court was concerned over compulsion upon the pastors to bargain respecting, and this is the statutory phrase, terms and conditions of employment, which could readily involve NLRB in matters of curriculum and teacher discipline, which the court called matters of central concern to the religious mission of the church. It noted the linkage between salaries and workload, between workload and class size, between class size and range of offerings, between range of offerings and curriculum, as well as admissions policies. This was a salutary decision, but it was made possible by the two-part test of Wisconsin versus Yoder. Fifteen years after the Yoder decision, the Supreme Court was starting to ignore the two-part Yoder test, compelling state interest, least restrictive means. In 1982, an opinion of Justice John Paul Stevens expressed concern over the fact that the Yoder test means that, as he put it, government always bears a heavy burden of justifying the application of neutral general laws to individual conscientious objectors. In my opinion, he said, it is the objector who must shoulder the burden of demonstrating that there is a unique reason for allowing him a special exemption from a valid law of general application. Well, Stephen's comment was ominous. He appeared to regard religious liberty as an exemption rather than a right. But worse would be the practical effect of his view. Religious claimants are often without large financial resources, or the resources they have are stewardship funds entrusted for religious uses. There is almost always an uphill fight against governmental agencies with publicly funded batteries of lawyers. Stevens, however, was but one of nine members of the court, and there seemed no likelihood that his views would win acceptance by any other member of the court. In 1986, however, the court held that the Yoder test did not apply in matters of military discipline. One S. Simchak Goldman, an Air Force officer who was an Orthodox Jewish rabbi, had faced court-martial 
should he observe his religious requirement of wearing a yarmulke indoors while on duty. He sued the Secretary of Defense, claiming that the Air Force regulations forbidding wearing headgear indoors violated his religious liberty. The Supreme Court, by a vote of five to four, while not denying that Goldman's practice was both religious and sincere, upheld the military reaction regulation because it was a military regulation. The military, said the majority, is a specialized society separate from civilian society. As Nathan Lewin of the National Jewish Commission on Law and Public Affairs was to say, the Air Force's position was a mere ipse dixit with no support from actual experience. Government had not been required to prove its case, prove that there was a compelling state interest which justified the Air Force's action. Justice Stevens' view was now making headway. In 1988, the court gave the Yoder decision a strange and further limited meaning. In a case involving the U.S. Forest Service's plan to construct a road and harvest timber on a part of national forest lands used immemorially by the Indians for religious purposes, the court held that the Yoder test applies only in the narrow circumstance in which government actually tries to coerce someone in the practice of religious beliefs. This case is known as Ling, L-Y-N-G, versus Northwest Indians Cemetery Protective Association. The stifling narrowness of this interpretation is thrown into bold relief by the court's statement that, and I'm quoting, even assuming that the government's action here will virtually destroy the Indians' ability to practice their religion, the Constitution simply does not provide a principle that could justify upholding the Indians' legal and religious claims. Here, as in the Goldman case, the point to note is not whether the government was right or wrong, but whether the court made it prove that a compelling state interest justified its actions and that no less drastic means were at its disposal to accomplish what it wanted to do. The Yarmulke, an Indian lands case, left us at the end of 1988 a bit concerned. We waited with some anxiety what the Supreme Court might hold in the next religious freedom case to come before it. Would it be possible that the court would continue ignoring the Yoder test? On April 17, 1990, the court gave answer. It threw out that test. The case in which it did involved North American Indians who, as a part of a religious ceremony, smoked a hallucinogenic substance known as peyote. Use of peyote had long been a sacramental feature of Native American religious ceremonies. Oregon law classified it as a controlled substance, the possession of which was forbidden. The two users of peyote were employees of a state drug rehabilitation organization and were fired because of their conduct. They sought unemployment compensation and this was refused. Their case was eventually decided by the Supreme Court. Now there is no doubt that the action of the two Indians was part of a sincerely held to religious ceremony. Use of the peyote was proved to be a religious act by them. 
They pointed out that the state had not attempted to enforce its drug law against them and that all that was involved in their case was their claim for unemployment compensation. There was no evidence whatever that this limited use of peyote in a religious ceremony had ever harmed anybody. Well, you're familiar with the Sherbet and Yoder cases, and I suppose you're now looking for the Supreme Court to require that the free exercise clause required that the state prove there was a compelling state interest in enforcing the law in the matter of the religious use of peyote. But you're going to be disappointed. The Supreme Court said that the compelling state interest test was not required in any religious liberty case. Government said the court does not have to prove a compelling state interest in the enforcement of any of its laws restricting religion. The court laid down a new test that government actions must pass where they are alleged to infringe upon religious liberty. That test is simply that the government action in question be, as the court put it, religiously neutral, not mention religion, not mention any particular religion, simply be silent as to religion, and that its action be, again, court's language, generally applicable, applicable across the board to all. Since Oregon's statute against use of hallucinogenic drugs was plainly religiously neutral, and since it was also generally applicable to all people, the court said it did not offend the free exercise clause. This decision, Employment Division versus Smith is the name of the case, was viewed as calamitous by religious groups throughout the United States. I think they were right in their vehement protest. Many forms of governmental action harmful to religion are religiously neutral. In our day, government is expanding into every area of human existence, and its action sometimes impinges, intentionally or unintentionally, on religious interests without ever mentioning religion. Let's assume that your state legislature, egged on by such groups as Planned Parenthood, creates a law requiring that children in all high schools, public and private, be supplied condoms. I think you'd agree that this would be enormously offensive to many religious groups, and that the requirement that religious high schools observe the new state law would be a serious violation of the religious liberty of those schools and of the parents involved in them. But here you'd have a law which is religiously neutral and is applicable across the board, and hence you'd not be able to succeed in court in resisting the government on what you would deem to be your constitutional religious liberty grounds, your free exercise grounds. It's thoughts such as this that caused a nationwide coalition of religious groups to form and to pressure the Congress to enact legislation which would restore the compelling state interest least restrictive means test. The Congress accordingly enacted the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and this was signed into law in 1993. A short while thereafter, the Catholic Archbishop of San Antonio, Paul F. Flores, had sought to enlarge a parish church of his in Bernie, Texas, but was forbidden to do so by local authorities who claimed that the existing church was subject to a local historical preservation ordinance, which would require its maintaining its design, the design it had had over the years, and the needed enlargement could not take place.
The Archbishop resisted the application of that law to his church under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. His case went to the Supreme Court of the United States, and on June 25, 1997, the Supreme Court held the Religious Freedom Restoration Act to be invalid. The court based its judgment on the principle of separation of powers, which is a good principle indeed when properly applied. Way back in 1816, I think we have mentioned, Chief Justice John Marshall had laid down a principle invariably followed since his day that the Supreme Court and not the Congress is the final interpreter of the Constitution. Separation of powers protects us against undue accumulations of power in any one of the three branches of government, the legislative, the executive, the judicial. The Supreme Court, in Archbishop Flores' case, echoing John Marshall, could have ruled simply that the separation of powers did not permit the Congress to enact the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, overriding the Supreme Court's Employment Division versus Smith decision. Unhappily, the court went further in its opinion in the case and fully affirmed its very bad rule in the Smith case. We're therefore left in a position in which governmental power can be exerted in a very substantial way against religious freedom. We naturally ponder what it is we can do in defense of religious liberty in the future. I'm sure that lawyers litigating on behalf of religious freedom in future cases are going to try their best to fit their case within the narrow test given in the Smith case. That is, they will try to show that government action against religious freedom is not religiously neutral or not of general application. But that will be of little avail in many, many cases because a great deal of governmental action has the unintended consequence of harming religion yet does harm religion. As we saw in the NLRB case I just spoke of, where you had a religiously neutral law of general application, the National Labor Relations Act, applied then to the Catholic parish schools. Well, a second alternative is to work at both the state and federal levels to obtain specific legislation protective of religious freedom. In the late 1980s, for example, Evangelical Christians and Catholics got together in Pennsylvania in order to enact a statute highly protective of religious schools, barring the state from dictating anything but a generally acceptable and traditional core curriculum, barring the state from requiring state certification of teachers in religious schools, and in general protecting the freedom of those schools. A third avenue to try in protecting religious liberty in the future may be found in state constitutions. For example, in Kentucky, in 1977, the State Board of Education tried to shut down evangelical schools in that state, which were resisting the state's attempt to impose extreme controls over those schools, very objectionable to their very clearly stated religious objectives. The Supreme Court of Kentucky eventually found in favor of the schools basing its decision on an ancient provision of the Constitution of Kentucky. It's section five, which says that no man shall be compelled to send his child to any school to which he may be conscientiously opposed. Again, very recently, following the Smith decision, Amish people in Minnesota who had been arrested for their refusal 
because of religious reasons to use certain symbols required by local law, lost in the Supreme Court of the United States, which held that that state law respecting those symbols was religiously neutral and generally applicable. The Amish then sought relief under the Constitution of Minnesota's Conscience Clause, and the Supreme Court of Minnesota agreed with them. I have to mention here that when I speak of minority religious groups, for example, the Indians that we were referring to, the Amish, others who aren't large religious bodies, I sense an impatience on the part of people who belong to, say, mainline congregations, seem to express a sort of contempt for these groups and ask why the court should be so concerned about them. But I would remind Catholics that we have been, Catholics have been, the object of much the same kind of contempt. If you read Macaulay's History of England, you'll see throughout the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, constant expressions of contempt for the Catholic faith, a minority faith in England at that time, and the use of the word superstition to describe Catholic practices. So we need to be sensitive to this subject. This contempt is a two-edged sword. As we now warily watch how, under the Smith rule, religious liberty cases will be treated in our courts, we must give focus to the major matter of the right of religious institutions to self-governance. We touched upon that in the NLRB case from Philadelphia. The institutional life of religion in the fields of education, health, and welfare has been prodigious in our country. Catholic institutions in all three fields, as well as its uniquely religious houses, convents, monasteries, seminaries, had long been vital strengths for our nation as well as for the church. For all religious institutions, two developments have surfaced in our courts which have threatened religious liberty. First, the reach of governmental regulation. Second, litigations within religious bodies. As to the first, it's often difficult to find the proper dividing line between public regulation in the name of the common good and the liberty of religious institutions to run their own affairs. When we consider Catholic teachings on religious liberty and social justice, we do not find it libertarian or expressing an again-the-government point of view. It stays with the preaching of St. Paul. Let everyone be subject to the higher authorities, for rulers are a terror not to the good work but to the evil, he said. Of course, Americans don't conceive our state and federal officials as rulers, but we do see them as invested with the duty to assure and advance the common good. Obviously, if churches undertake to found hospitals for the care of the sick, centers for child care, care of the poor, schools for children, they have entered upon territory in which the common good is very much involved. That is, areas in which we must acknowledge a role for the state, protective of the public, areas in which we must render unto Caesar. The Catholic Church in our country has been a magnificent contributor to the common good by its health, education, and social welfare activities. The further we go back in history, in the history of these endeavors, the more we see two features. 
First, their pure charity, sacrificial giving on behalf of the poor, the young, the sick. Second, their vision of their work as religious ministries, by which I mean that their schools, their hospitals, their child care agencies, their soup kitchens would not, would not exist but for their object of service to Christ, in some endeavors like running schools directly evangelizing, in all serving Christ by serving human needs. The intersection of church and state is most visible where the state is providing funding for church work in education, health care, etc. Where that funding does not exist, or where it exists only minimally, for example, in respect to religious elementary and secondary schools, the rational basis for government regulation is minimal, and the right to resist anything but minimal regulation is maximum. In the Kentucky case I mentioned a few moments ago, the State Board of Education had sought to license all privately financed schools in the state in such a way that the religious schools could use none but state-approved textbooks, have no teachers except teachers approved by the state, and the state assumed power to set the curriculum of the religious schools. Eighteen evangelical schools in Kentucky resisted this state scheme, whereby their governance would have been, in fact, taken over by the state. None of them, as I say, were recipients of state financial aid. Happily, the courts upheld their self-governance. But it may be asked, if the public pays for something, can't it regulate what it's paid for? Yes, to the extent that the common good requires it. No, where the common good does not require it, or where the regulation offends the exercise of fundamental rights. The church-state relationship is not a relationship governed by a rule that, if a church institution parallels work done by a governmental agency, then it must likewise come under government control. Religious institutions should not assume they must and should be very careful to avoid giving away matters of governance which are essential to their ministry. In this vein, I've told you in our second session about the major triumph for radical church separation, that case of Lemon versus Kurtzman in 1970. The same day that was decided, a case known as Tilton versus Richardson, involving federal construction grants to Catholic colleges in Connecticut, was also decided. While the court held that the state aid in Lemon was unconstitutional, it upheld the college aid in the Tilton case. Why the difference? The difference lay in the fact that the Catholic colleges in question, in the Tilton case, had been willing to make departures from their Catholic mission and become secular to the extent necessary to get government aid. The Supreme Court described those colleges as follows. The institutions presented evidence that there had been no religious services or worship in the federally financed facilities, that there had been no religious symbols or plaques in or on them. These buildings are indistinguishable from a typical state university facility. There is no evidence that religion seeps into the use of any of these facilities. Indeed, the parties stipulated that courses at these institutions are taught according to the academic requirements intrinsic to the subject matter and the individual teacher's concept of professional standards. After the Tilton decision came the case of four Catholic colleges in Maryland 
whose receiving of annual grants from the state had been challenged on Establishment Clause grounds. Hear now the description of those colleges when the Supreme Court of the United States upheld the grants. Here's what the court said. Though controlled and largely populated by Roman Catholics, the colleges are not restricted to adherents of that faith. No religious services were required to be attended. Theology courses were mandatory, but they were taught in an academic fashion and with treatment of beliefs other than Roman Catholicism. There were not attempts to proselytize among students, and principles of academic freedom prevailed. With colleges of this country, there was little risk that religion would seep into the teaching of secular subjects, and the state surveillance necessary to separate the two therefore was diminished. This case is Romer, R-O-E-M-E-R, versus the Board of Public Works. There have been two bad effects of the Tilton and Romer decisions. One, of course, is their reinforcement of the teaching of the Lemon case, that the genuinely religious institution, irrespective of principles of religious liberty, must be excluded from participation in governmental benefits. The other was the argument that Catholic college presidents could now be making to their bishops, namely that the colleges would lose governmental aid if they were to conform to religious norms set by the hierarchy. You can see the bad effects of these decisions on the independence of the church. If an aided Catholic college were to discharge a teacher for, say, lack of doctrinal integrity or lack of uprightness of life, could it not be deprived then of governmental aid? Today, Catholic hospitals, schools, child care agencies, welfare agencies, cemeteries, etc., and all Catholic institutions wrestle or should be wrestling with how they may maintain their mission, church mission, Christ's mission distinctly, and avoid compromises which diminish carrying out that mission. It would not be reactionary or conservative extremism on their part were they to hearken to what James Madison said so perceptively in respect to governmental threats to religious liberty. Madison said it's proper to take alarm at the first experiment with our liberties. The free men of America did not wait until usurped power had strengthened itself by exercise and entangled the question in precedence. They saw all the consequences in the principle and they avoided the consequences by denying the principle. I think the Catholic bishops of Pennsylvania said it all when they said some years ago, under our American constitutional form of government, the church should not feel that it must live by sufferance, but should instead insist that, as it commits itself to live according to the law, so must government. As the church ought never to seek or accept favors by grace of administrators, so it should be forceful in requiring governmental administrators to follow statutes and to observe our Constitution. Those individuals are public servants and they have no power except that given them by constitutional statutes. It's not only the federal and state constitutions to which we may turn to protect religious freedom, in particular the rightful freedom of church from state. Much protection is also found in statutes. I've mentioned state statutes such as Pennsylvania's 1988 law specifically designed to protect religious schools. 
But at the federal level, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 makes it an unfair employment practice for any employer to discriminate against any individual with respect to his compensation, terms, or conditions of employment because of that individual's race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. But it exempts also churches and other religious associations from its provision against religious discrimination. It allows religious educational institutions to select employees of a particular religion where religion is an occupational qualification necessary to the operation of the enterprise. Title IX of the Federal Civil Rights Act, while it bars sex discrimination by federally financially assisted institutions, exempts institutions whose religious tenets may require such selection or discrimination. There are state laws paralleling the Federal Civil Rights Act. One problem that has recently arisen affecting freedom of religious institutions has been the attempt nationally and in most states to enact statutes barring discrimination on account of the homosexuality of individuals, or as it is characteristically phrased, on account of the sexual orientation of individuals. Some of the laws now being advocated allow no exemption by religious institutions for religious, i.e. moral reasons. We'll take up these in more detail when we come to examine, in our last session, religious liberty in terms of religious moral concerns. So churches are living in some ongoing tension with respect to their governance, the governance of their institutions. But let's now turn to that secondary that I mentioned, wherein church governance has been threatened, namely litigation within religious bodies. During the Civil War, conflict over the slavery issue had divided both the Methodist and Presbyterian churches originating, as landmark cases often do, in a seemingly minor matter. The fight over who should have lawful possession of Louisville's Walnut Street Presbyterian Church, Unionist Presbyterians or Confederate Presbyterians, culminated in the court's epical decision in Watson versus Jones. The General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in the United States had condemned slavery and demanded the loyalty of all Presbyterians to the federal government. Pro-slavery Presbyterians at Walnut Street denounced the national church as heretical, hence without any right to the obedience of Presbyterians or to the Walnut Street property. The Supreme Court found itself faced with a contest between two Presbyterian churches, each claiming to be true and each holding the other heretical. But stating that, the law knows no heresy. The court held itself without power to pass upon any religious issues. It focused not on which of the contending churches was true, but on where authority lay in a church whose laws made its local congregations subordinate to a body in which supreme power of control is vested, here the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church. For such churches, the court held, all who unite themselves to such a body do so with an implied consent to this government and are bound to submit to it. The court warned that a total subversion of such churches would result 
If anyone aggrieved, I'm quoting the court now, if anyone aggrieved by their decisions could appeal to the secular courts and have them reversed. The court would later characterize this decision, in the case of Watson versus Jones, in constitutional terms as radiating a spirit of freedom for hierarchical religious organizations, recognizing their power to decide for themselves, as the court said, free from state interference, matters of church government as well as those of faith and doctrine. In 1929, the Supreme Court of the United States was to hearken back to the Watson case when the court took up the matter of a trust to celebrate Catholic masses, the terms of which trust were disputed in the Archdiocese of Manila in the Philippines. One Raul Ruggiero Gonzalez had sued the Archbishop of Manila seeking a court order to be appointed chaplain and to have income relating to that chaplaincy. The archbishop refused to appoint him on the ground of his not being qualified under the canon law of the church since he was a mere boy and further lacked elementary knowledge of Christian doctrine. The Supreme Court upheld the archbishop and refused to override the canon law of the church. The court simply deferred to what the highest judicatory of a hierarchical church had said was the church's law. It then looked at the terms of the trust and said that under canon law, Mr. Gonzalez had no claim. Said the court, because the appointment of a chaplain is a canonical act, it is the function of the church authorities to determine what are the essential qualifications of a chaplain and whether the candidate possesses them. But the court listed possible exceptions to its observing the decisions of the tribunals of hierarchical churches. Fraud, collusion, or arbitrariness, as the court put it, would be exceptions to this rule of non-jurisdiction of the courts. It found no such factors in the archbishop's case. The archbishop had just followed the canon law of the church. There could be nothing fraudulent, collusive, or arbitrary about that. That line in the Gonzales case about arbitrariness was to be taken very seriously in a case which came before the court 47 years later, and that phrase is still bobbing about in cases even now. Yes, very much the same kind of problem, and one of high interest to the Catholic Church, arose in 1976 in the Serbian Orthodox Church. The church removed and defrocked the bishop of one of its dioceses. It also split the diocese into three dioceses. The bishops sued in the Illinois courts to get them to rule that these two actions were invalid because arbitrary, that is to say unreasonable. The Illinois Supreme Court agreed saying that it had looked at the church's internal regulations and found that the church in its two actions had failed to follow its own regulations. Therefore, what it did, the Illinois court said, was arbitrary, hence it was invalid. The U.S. Supreme Court wrapped the knuckles of the Illinois court. The Supreme Court said that civil courts, and I'm quoting, are bound to accept the decisions of the highest ecclesiastical judicatories of a religious organization of hierarchical polity on matters of discipline, faith, internal organization, or ecclesiastical rule, custom, or law. For civil courts to analyze whether the 
ecclesiastical actions of a church judicatory are in that sense arbitrary, said the court, is exactly the kind of inquiry that the First Amendment prohibits. But the Watson and Serbian precedents did not permanently dampen the spirit of intra-church litigation, as the Presbyterian and Episcopalian churches, and today the Catholic Church, would presently find out. Suing the National Presbyterian Church in the 60s over rights to local church properties were Presbyterian congregations protesting the church's ordaining of women, its new liberal stands on social and economic issues, its opposition to the Vietnam War, its teaching, as the dissidents put it, non-orthodoxy alien to the confession of faith and catechism. Almost a century after its appearance, the old Watson decision was invoked by the Supreme Court in favor of the national church. The court again pointed out that that church had a hierarchical structure of powers and the court held itself forbidden to inquire whether the authority at the pinnacle of that structure had departed from doctrine. Protestant Episcopal Church due to its embracing of somewhat similar changes after 1960, found itself repeatedly challenged in court by Episcopalians unhappy with the changes. Those too involved ordination of women, teachings deemed both novel and heretical, and importantly here, changes in the wording of the Book of Common Prayer. The courts have consistently upheld the Episcopalian Mother Church in its resistance to such dissidents. The Catholic Church in America today faces a division somewhat parallel to the divisions seen in the large Protestant bodies. Talk of schism and excommunication has been rife. Yet thus far, those unhappy with the so-called liberalizing post-Vatican II changes in the Church have not like the opponents of liberalizing in the Protestant churches carried their protests into court. But cases involving discipline within the Catholic Church have been reaching the courts, not a few of these being brought by Catholic clergy. The suits have come in as many forms as the ingenuity of lawyers can devise. Some have accused bishops of defamation albeit through internal communications in pursuit of ecclesiastical duties. Some, spurred by professional canon lawyers, have sought to win civil court judgments on the ground that a bishop had read the canon law incorrectly. Other suits by disaffected Catholics charge church institutions with discrimination, age, religion, sex, usually couched in familiar civil rights rhetoric and seemingly ignorant not only of the broad exemptions given to religious institutions by federal and state anti-discrimination laws, but also of the protective standard of Watson. But the Supreme Court's decisions in Watson and later cases affirm that the Constitution allows the Church to be true to herself, and she should rejoice in this. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.